So I'm sorry. No, it's it's good. I'm actually feeling very, very positive about everything. People seem to like me at work, which is definitely a plus. And uh time for everything, I suppose. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> but yeah, it's nice to have something to do that isn't directly entirely based on me just going, Yeah, I should do something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's nice to have somewhere to be. It's um it's uh, yeah. all part of a charm of the uh, capitalist system, I imagine. That is so true. But, uh, you know, if things keep progressing as they have, retail will potentially be open end of next week or maybe even earlier if uh, if Dan Andrews is to be believed. And who knows about that? He's a politician. Never trust a politician. Know if it's a case of belief. It's a case of what's happening between now and then. As, uh, as the uh, esteemed representative of the show who works for the, uh, well, a, a department of a particular public institution <laughs> that may have some <laughs> insight into what's going on with said virus. Um, you know, you're, you've got to be uh, nimble. True. Yes. Yeah. I think that, that, that word is definitely the party line. Nimble. Uh, nimble. <laughs> you know, like if they get 15 cases tomorrow, then. But I'll tell you something though, that I've been working in Doncaster shopping center Monday and Tuesday, and I've been in um, Eastland today. And every single day that I've been in those shopping centers, the stores that have got the lines at the door, barbers and hairdressers. Well, the first time I've opened for a number of months, so I yeah. know a number of people who've sort of said the same thing and sort of gone, oh, I can get a haircut. It's um, it's so strange that they've gone to like, oh, yeah, you know, the first thing that I need to do is get myself looking pretty. Well, I mean, like, I haven't had a haircut since February. So um, I, I spoke to someone today who hadn't had one since for about the same time frame. So people, you know, it's a... Um, it's a bit like having a shower after you get off a long flight. Do you, do people <laughs> say to themselves, oh, you know, I feel human again after you have a, a, a shower. That's uh, fair. That's so fair. I feel like it's sort of, you know, if you're getting a bit shaggy and like, you know, you have your hair's all over the shop, it's not necessarily just making it look good. It's just getting it under control um, <laughs> for a lot of people. So, yeah, it's um, it's a privilege, I guess, but it's, it's, um, it's one nonetheless a lot of people have missed, I imagine. Yeah, I reckon so. And... You know, it's uh, I guess it's that uh, simple thing of first step of self-care, I suppose, you know. Well, it's, it's surprising, you know, the little things that can make people feel better about themselves. So, you know, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. there are a lot of people out there who like wearing nice clothes, Ugh. Uh, you know, <laughs> dressing up. I mean, I literally hate it. Like for regular viewers will be shocked to see, uh, to hear this, but I, I absolutely hate wearing shirts. And mm -hmm. suits and pants of not i hate wearing formal clothes and um uh, i know it's something you're supposed to do but i don't like it so i don't mm -hmm. do it um yeah if i unless, I, unless I'm getting paid if i'm being paid i'll do it that is true that is true it is, is. uniform for payment <laughs> it's, i've heard it called the business burger and i like that yeah i think that's fair i think that's fair but, but there are a lot of people out there who really like it so this is yet yeah. another thing like people once stuff opens again they can get dressed up and go places yeah it's going to be a big thing for a lot of people for me and you i am just when cinemas reopen oh yeah oh my god I, I i go past the cinemas at the shopping centers and it's kind of like that longing oh as i walk past this like please 
The Astor put out a new poster, the Astor being the, the, the last, the last yes. single screen cinema in Melbourne and it had ten at the top <coughs> half of this. I mean, well, mm. there's not a new product for them to choose from. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think given an opportunity, that's what I will I'll be doing. That's where I think I'll go and see yeah. it. I don't think I'll get to see it maybe I'll get to see it on IMAX, but maybe. And uh, maybe both. Hopefully yeah. it's good enough for both. It'd be lovely to be able to go go and experience that in the IMAX, but I'd I'd want to you know if if that's going to happen, I would want to be able to have a beer afterwards and have a discussion. I believe you could. Like, I mean, um, <laughs> I don't know how far. I mean, like, restaurants are going to be opening in the next couple of weeks, theoretically. So apparently, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe pubs will be as well. Maybe, maybe, but um, yeah, we we have uh, started by. This seems to be a typical thing. Maybe it's just quarantine time. Well, maybe it's stuff. It's kind of topical. It is fairly topical, I suppose, yes. And no film encapsulates the bizarre world that we live in um, quite more than this week's chain movie. That's a segue for you, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about Coraline. Um, It was um, written for the screen and directed by Henry Selleck, who also... Um, wrote and directed last week's Chain movie, which is The Nightmare Before Christmas, inspired by a Tim Burton story and produced by Tim Burton. Um, Travis, when was the last time you watched Coraline, or have you not watched I've never, never watched this film before. Okay, so this is your first time. Tell me yeah. your thoughts, my man. Um, this is going to sound like a repetition from last week. I thought it was beautiful, but dull. That's um, fair. So, hello to uh, my friend Leslie, who's tuning in on my Facebook Live. So, if you jump onto the Fry Brain Productions, uh, Leslie, you should be able to hear both of us talk. Unfortunately, if you want to stick with this camera view, you can only hear me. But if you, know, you can also go over to take YouTube, my headphones off and, and you can good. go to um, uh, Twitch as well. Twitch.tv slash George Terran, I think it is. Um, and youtube.com slash armchair producers. So you'll be able to watch along live on those platforms. I and already engage. take my headphones off and it'll come through the speakers. And theoretically, you should now be able to hear the dulcet tones of my co host. <laughs> I will put um, on I, more of a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I found this a little bit dull. I would uh, agree with that. Two thirds, the first two thirds of it, I thought were really slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was struggling to maintain any interest in it other than going, wow, this looks incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. Nightmare Before Christmas last week looked amazing. Mm-hmm. This one looked like doubly amazing. So I have to imagine that would probably be due to the progression of computer graphics in the meantime. And there's some some some, some smoothing there or something. Computers were involved in the in the um Hello, Corey. We are talking about Coraline, this week's film. So sorry to keep interrupting for people who no, don't. No, 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 no. Engage you, with the people. You don't like this me being interrupted. Tune in live. Um, <laughs> what was I saying? So I found it a little bit slow, a little bit hard to follow, hard to get involved in the story. But I was saying that I found the um, the uh, the actual animation. I feel like there was some sort of computer involved there because it looks so much nicer and smoother um than than nightmare before christmas so it was that said you you go into the trivia on imdb and you have a read of the ridiculous scale of this film it's mm-hmm. insane the amount of hours that went into animating this the amount of resources they had 26 different Coraline puppets or something like that um and i i just found myself marveling at how beautiful everything looked and how gorgeous 
Um, the animation was even above. Like we talked last week about Nightmare Before Christmas, how amazing I thought that was. Mm. Uh, I think this tops it absolutely um, comfortably. Uh, and it was just like some of the scenes, like I think the scene in the, the theatre where we're over the dogs, uh, and it was just amazing. But at the same yeah. time, I kind of found it hard to engage with the story a great deal or, or care about what was going on until they finally got things got a little bit more interesting mm. um, in, in the third act. Um, we, sh we should probably take a step back here. And so if people are out there who are, we always do this, so <laughs> of course. Um, if you haven't seen Coraline like I have and you just think it's that film of the puppets, an adventurous 11-year-old girl finds another world, this strangely idealised version of her frustrating home, but it has sinister secrets. That about sums it up. We have yeah, the young girl, Caroline, who uh, finds a, a door in her home, the wall of her new home. At night, it opens up and takes her to a parallel world to her own where okay. her neglectful mother and father uh, are actually doting, loving parents, and it's quite a seductive uh, proposition for her. Uh, mm. And as they start to... Um, as they um start, she starts to spend more time there. Uh, that, that her old other mother and father start to encourage her to stay, and in doing so, she has to sew buttons to her eyes. Um, and um, uh, the actual old other mother and father have buttons for eyes. Everyone in that world seems to have buttons for eyes. Uh, and so, despite them looking a bit sinister, they don't quite match. But as they things start to go on, she starts to get the odd hint here and there that things maybe aren't what they seem. So I guess that that traditional, uh, you know, uh, care for what you wish for um, sort of unbuilt her and you might just get it. So I was I was being a curmudgeonly uh, bastard like always before I started getting <laughs> back into the, uh, the, the, the mechanics of it. I found it a little slow and a little bit, a, a little bit difficult to buy into. And I guess where I landed in is why I think I was getting, having a little trouble really engaging for story was I'm not sure exactly what um, what um, the actual target audience of this is. I feel like on the one hand, this is aimed at a significantly part of it. at least the first two thirds, first two thirds. I felt like were really target would, would match a very young audience. Yeah, significantly younger than me. Whereas the last act, no way would I let a kid near this. Like it got yeah. really scary. Like um, not for for a young audience. So. I kind of like, so where I stopped, I started really engaging is where I feel like the film really stepped up and started actually serving me some content targeted at adults, whereas the first two thirds of it would I felt like maybe keep the kids happy. Yeah, I definitely feel uh, I, I agree with you. This is a definite feast for the eyes. I The the hot, the amount of animation going on all at once when Coraline is going through the garden and things like that it's insane the visuals the fact that um nightmare before christmas it was a very bleak and gloomy and very um pallid kind of color tone throughout the the whole thing ex except when you get to christmas uh, christmas land where it's a bit more bright but even then it's still using a lot of dark and light versus color and uh volume volumetric kind of cinema uh, cinematography this one it's just really in your face they go yep we know how to use modern day technology 
infinitely better to make this look stunning. It is lit amazing. Um, I don't know whether they use higher quality cameras or something like that, but I totally agree with you. The animation is more fluid. Um, it flows just wonderfully. You've still got, like I was talking about last week, and we agreed that sense of living individual, that personality within each of the characters. But yeah, it's it's very, very slow to get started. And um, the kind of the moral of the whole film is really good. I think I mentioned it last week with uh, Neil Gaiman's masterclass talking about bravery being that point of actually going back to a place that you know is dangerous um, to do something bigger than yourself. Um, and I mean, that's, I guess, I mean to, to, to take a, a real world example, like, um, what uh remember you remember those of us old enough to remember 9 11 um the, the the people who ran towards danger yeah absolutely. running into a burning building is is i think maybe what you're talking about from you know yeah or, or it is i mean the only good part um of um <laughs> dawn of justice batman versus superman dawn of justice is where uh all the buildings are falling over but bruce wayne he runs yeah. straight into it so such a good, good sequence but, and that's that's that kind of moment right yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like there's a lot of build-up beforehand. It's slow little elements, like we, we get to know Coraline and her character and her kind of the way that she views the world and how she thinks that it should be for her. Um, and that's good, that's well done, but it is slow and kind of a little monotonous and then it, eventually you know in that in that final third it does kick it up a notch and you suddenly go oh okay cool it's just it's a bit of a slog getting there if you if you're not invested like i i can absolutely see where you're talking about. we've talked about it for for quite a few movies now even going back to child's play where there's that element of humor versus um that um that serious tone and how movies like um gremlins and things like that where they balance those elements nicely the first two thirds of this movie very much feel like yep this is children's and then the balance shifts and I can kind of see a point of that in where well, children need to grow up at some point, but the twist in this movie is quite a sudden shift and it does get pretty damn creepy. Like, yeah, I think they can see how a parent might've taken their kid to this or got the video. It was 2009. It could have been a DVD um, and gone watch the first 20 minutes and go, this is fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. And then, you know, having the kid freaking traumatized by the end of it because, like, oh, my goodness, it um, it really goes up to, uh, turns everything up to 11. And I liked that. I was, like, really enjoying it by the end. And that was the um, the, the transformation of the other mother into um, a pretty creepy-looking monster um, was uh, really impressive and really uh, a really enjoyable and tense. Yeah. And really tense. I was really engaged in the final battle if you will um mm. between between Coraline and um I forget the actual monster's name the other mother um yeah, yeah that would be <laughs> um but yeah it was it, it was really tense uh, and like I only wish that maybe managed to had to spend a lot of time on world building a lot of time mm. on character building which is fine love characters yeah uh, but I just think it needed a little bit more punch 
I feel uh, like they could have got more of that if they'd introduced the ghosts of the children a little earlier because it suddenly you are suddenly introduced with that and there's a bit of an exposition dump and then we're off to the races and it's boom, 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 boom. Things happen and happen and happen. And if they had kind of just put a bit more of suggestion of that coming through or a bit of introduction to it, that would have been, I think that would have been a good way to just speed that first half and two thirds up a little bit more and make it a little bit more engaging. But um, I, yeah. Uh, have, you, have you read the um, Have you read the novel? No, but I am going to get it on Audible um, because Neil Gaiman does the narration for his, all his own books, and he's very, very good. Um, I am curious to see how close it sticks to the source material because a lot of Neil Gaiman's adaptations, when you look at Stardust or American Gods, um, Neverwhere, the iterations that have been of that, they do stray quite a bit from the source material in what i feel are kind of key key ways um never in necessarily the same kind of oh there's this very typical neil gaiman thing that he does that just doesn't translate to um to tvs but it's um i don't know they they always twist it and i'll be curious to see what they kept in what they added from uh from the difference between the book and the and the movie i know the character of uh weeby Webby. Mm. Wavy uh, uh, wasn't in the book, and he's mm. a creation of the filmmakers, or Harry Selleck, Henry Selleck, because mm. he wrote the script um, to, to basically give Carolina a counterpart at her own age to sort of mm. to age with and talk with, and he plays quite a pivotal role in the end. Um, yeah. It's an 11-year-old it's an film, people. Spoiler. <laughs> um, characters I really enjoyed, I massively enjoyed the actresses, so Miss Spink and Miss Forcible, mm-hmm. uh, and um, <laughs> they um, the fact that they managed to get uh, um, Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French for those roles, yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect choice, amazing mm-hmm. choice. Um, I don't know that it would have worked anywhere near as well without those two. I mean, they've made a career out of you know working together, those two, and like absolutely, absolutely, chemistry together. Like, I wonder if those when you hear those sort of those segments you go did they put them in the voice booth together did they did they do it at the same time i really hope they did but they yeah. like have dawn french come in one day and you know jennifer saunas come in on a different day and do her bit because yeah surely they got to work better with them in the same room yeah absolutely i really liked keith david's work as the cat he's so freaking cool yeah he absolutely nails that the quite a quintessential cat characteristic of that smooth and cool movement but also yeah i'm better than you kind of attitude (laughs) but um yeah you know i there's there's not many people that i i can think just have that innate kind of juxtaposition of those two personality types in one and keith david just does a really good job with it i really really impressed with it uh, i i had a thought and and this is just um while i was watching it last night the one, mm. one of the things that there's not much runs across my mind when i'm watching these things there's very mm. little on going on upstairs on a, <laughs> that, that's why that's why i have the brains behind the operation at the other end of the uh the call here mm-hmm. um very little on going on upstairs but i did have a thought mm-hmm. um and um that was it kind of reminded me and it just maybe it was the cat thing but did I get a hint of Kiki's delivery service in the cat character? 
I, I yeah. Wonder, I wonder if the Ghibli films are an influence on someone like Henry Selick. Um, he he has this. They have this sort of. He has a darkness that I don't think the, the Ghibli films do quite the same way. But this sort of playful of a world that he sort of manages to create. Mm. And and considering they are a different genres of animation, but it would be surprising if if he wasn't, you know, a fan of, of Miyazaki's work. I think that that would definitely make sense. I feel I would, especially you saying that Neil Gaiman was the one who uh, did the screen adaptation or the screenplay adaptation of Princess Mononoke from the Japanese market to the Western market. So there is already kind of a connection between those source materials i guess so it's it's interesting that you found you found that connection anyway and i would kind of agree there's an element of phil hartman and um and Gigi in uh in the cat in this movie maybe it's, it's just a smooth talking smart smart ass cat sort of character who yeah you never know it all but you're right it's kind of matches what a cat's personality should be i would imagine so um, I forgot that was Phil Hartman. He's he's me. I know um, that's a that's a long time ago, but uh, uh, we did for those who were, we used to do seasons on this show. We would do a season would be four or five episodes where we would special spend spend all our time looking mainly at a um, particular genre or, or, or director or actor who could forget the Steve Gutenberg season. I surely haven't. Um. <laughs> That was a treat. That was a treat for everyone involved. Um, yeah. There's a reason we moved away from him. Um, but we did do a season where, where George did his best to to educate me on, on the world of anime. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know what? That was a boon because like, I think the year <laughs> after that, I went to I went back to Japan for the second time. And then all of a sudden, when I saw Kiki's delivery service stuff anywhere, I'm like, oh! Life made sense. I know what that <laughs> character is. That's the cat from Kiki's delivery service now. All of a sudden, everything made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So, overall, I want to have a quick call out mm. uh, on the voicing, uh, and that was Ian McShane, who did a wonderful job as uh, Bobinski. Yes, Bobinski. Yeah, I love Ian McShane's voice. I think he's great. Um, I don't know, but like, I didn't realize it was him because, like, I think Ian McShane. I think uh, John Wick. Um, oh yeah, yeah uh, it's probably the most recent thing I've seen him in that I always connect him with. Um, but I was like, oh my God, he did the Russian voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, so he was fantastic, but I just loved it also. I didn't pick this up until I read the trivia on IMDb and then I watched it again a little mm. bit closer. The attention to detail, just to go back to the technical side of things again, the mm. attention to detail involved in the characters, the medal he's wearing is a, a medal for being part of a cleanup crew for Chernobyl in 1986. It's a unique kind of medal that, like, <laughs> in, like so that's, that's what it is, though. It's a Chernobyl medal. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I honestly, I don't know Chernobyl well enough to go, oh, it's a Chernobyl medal, but, like, people did. Actually, so that's, you can see it says this and that thing. And I'm like, the attention to detail is insane. That That's it entirely. I, I think that's one of the real big things about stop motion movies and and when you look at like other stop motion movies like isle of dogs and uh the fantastic mr fox uh just to name two from wes anderson they 
it takes so long to film all of these sequences that it's sort of like, well, we're going to wring every single bloody bit of information and beauty and um, just world building into every single frame as we can, because otherwise we're just wasting a fuckload of time. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's got, they've got, um, I guess they've got time to get bored and put little jokes in and, you know, I'm, mm. I'm sure this film's packed with little gags and little yeah. nods to other things that, I maybe wouldn't notice, but maybe no one would notice except for the animator, right? Yeah. Disney animators did the same thing in, in their cell animated films because they never figured anybody would have, you know, DVD quality, you know, and be able to freeze frame the hell out of everyone and look at every yeah. single frame individually and find that, you know, little weird like, thing. Oh, there, there's there's the outline of Mickey Mouse every, yeah. every single time, you know. Um, yeah, all the, all the crazy things that the, uh, the wacko Christians in the 90s said were in at Disney films, you know, like... If you freeze frame it and squint, you can almost look like a breast, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it. I love when they put that little, those little, little nods into it, or little, yeah. little almost personal jokes that they don't expect anybody to get. But uh, I think it shows a real, a real love for their craft and a, mm. and a real respect for it. And uh, I think it elevates the film. Um, I yeah, it, 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 again, the scope the technical is amazing. How did this film not win an Oscar? Yeah, I mean, what what year was this out? Twenty ten. Okay. Twenty ten Oscars. I bet it lost to a freaking um, uh, Pixar film. It had to. Probably. Um, yeah. Uh, they always win that. Um, uh, we'll They're usually very good. Yeah, let's have a. Uh, it, what it lost to Up. Up. Okay. <sighs> yeah. no, sorry, tell light. I'm telling. I'm looking. At, that was a different one. I saw Up, and I thought surely that's it. No, that's uh, best animated feature. Yeah, yeah. It's not at least up is a goddamn masterpiece. It is fucking amazing. Um, I mean, I, you, you mentioned Fantastic Mr. Fox is in there as well. Yeah, Princess and the Frog and Caroline. Uh, to decent competition. Mm. Yeah, I think it was overall uh, that was a, a, a very healthy year, and I think that Up was probably the right one to to win, just on a complete holistic thing, technologically. It's so close, but the fact that Up has a very good progression of story, it keeps you engaged throughout the whole thing. Where, as we, I think we both agree, this is a much harder movie to get through at the start, and the payoff is still very good. But it's, I don't know whether it still kind of weighs up enough at the end to go. Oh no, it was worth going through that first hour to get to the last 40 minutes we have a question on my facebook stream here mm. so Corey says caroline the book has appeared in school book lists at year seven interesting oh um, what are your thoughts on it being used in schools i haven't seen it nor read it well neither mm. of us have read the book um mm. and and george is more familiar with neil gaiman than myself um have you does these books i didn't get the impression he wrote books that were suitable for children um he does he definitely does um i think he's especially um apparently he's been he had had he'd been working on Coraline for many years and um it was one of those things that just slowly developed over time so i i would be really interested to see if the book does do the same thing of kind of showing the the writer's evolution from his early initial thoughts as he progressed through and just got better as a writer and came in and did went off and did other projects and then came back and kind of went oh yeah i can do more of this and i generally associate neil gaiman as doing much more of the 
older child or older teen adult books, I find that there's often a lot of um, subtext and uh, general context and uh, violence in his stuff that I personally wouldn't really have a problem kind of saying, oh, yeah, um, a a 10-year-old can read this. I'll be fine. There is a little bit of scary in there, but it's, it's not done in that kind of gregarious, in your face, terrifying element. It's just kind of life is scary, even in these fantasy worlds, almost kind of Hans Christian Andersen kind of element to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's done uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane is a, a relatively new book of his that seems to be more angled towards the to, towards a younger audience. But again, I haven't read that yet. Um, but most of his famous works definitely more adult you thinking um uh american gods you even stardust to a certain degree the it's it's got a very kind of adult feel to it um that's a kind of a, a an illustrated book but um in some ways uh the anansi boys um all those kinds of things it's definitely more askew to the older but he, it's not none of his stuff is kind of exclusive you you never kind of read his things and go oh yeah no one uh this is definitely not for them it's like okay the explanations the stories the words and um, the explanations of things and situations is all very good and it's very um open to everyone and it's very well well planned and well executed stuff that i think that even a younger reader can kind of go okay, I know what's going on. There are a couple of words I need to ask about and, oh, that's that's scary. I, I need mum or dad to just explain this to me and help me feel better. But I don't Corey, think there's out terror. Corey says she would imagine they were there re- see a film after they read the novel. I think that would be a logical... Mm, I reckon so. Logical yeah. movement. You know, that, that, I don't know. I don't run English classes. I think it probably turn into an exercise. Go, oh, give me a critical analysis of it. <laughs> why did they do it and stuff? I, I don't know. This film would probably be, it would be probably okay, I think, for a year seven. So at 13, 14, I would mm. say for a set. They'd probably be fine with it. I think you, you know, I don't think you want to skew too much younger than that for, uh, if the content of a book is like a film, mm. um, it, it's, it's going to be a challenging read for them. But I mean, I guess I'm putting my 2020 hat on. Mm-hmm. I do that in the sense that kids' films these days are wussy. Yeah. Uh, and they underestimate children, I think. Mm-hmm. There's there's only a few people really making children's movies where they put they go to the length of actually putting this subtext in to kind of go, yeah, this is a family movie. We're putting these little jokes in or these little meanings for the adults. And when the kid comes back to this in five or six years, they're going to go, oh, okay, I didn't even... I didn't even see that um, beforehand or I didn't understand that before. Um, you know, you think about going back to m- so much of the TV animation from the 80s, 90s and early 2000s where it's like just batshit crazy stuff and you just laughed at it because it was animated. And now when you go back and look at it, it's like, oh, I'm thinking Ren and Stimpy as a prime example. <laughs> this well, the Simpsons to a degree as well. The Simpsons yeah. were really out there when it started. I mean, they got into an argument with a sitting US president. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's that kind of thing. But then you then you think about movies now and you think, 
I don't know, the Trolls movies, they're not exactly gunning for thought-provoking animation. They're just going, oh, yeah, yeah, we're just making a bright-colored animated movie that parents can just sit their child in front of and have an hour and a half away from being a parent. I think that kind of thing's always existed. I mean, the Care Bear mm-hmm. movie was a thing. Um, that I think it was a My Little Pony movie. Care Bear movie's on the list for my throwback podcast. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, See, now, I, I think that if you're going to do that, you've got to complement it with gummy bears, man. Uh, see, there's a whole point behind that podcast is films I saw when I was young and enjoyed. I don't remember <laughs> a gummy bears movie. Yeah, there was uh, there was one. It was uh, I think it was made for TV. I don't think I it got a cinema TV release. It, um, but uh, um, yeah, but, I mean, shitty animations always existed. I, I just feel like mm. if you look at a film, I always go back to it. Dark Crystal, <laughs> fucking yeah. scary as shit. Like yeah. that film wouldn't get past, wouldn't get across the line these days for children. I, I really don't, I, th- I don't think that it would be made. I don't. If they just went point for point, released the Dark Crystal today, I don't think it would be made because it. I doubt that it would get in the PG thirteen bracket, and they're probably not going to make that movie for a fifteen rated release. Well, it, exactly. I mean, you don't make animated films for adults, at least not major studios. I mean, mm. animation in in the West is still largely a family affair unless unless you're wes anderson and and you get that kind of cast behind you and you've Mm. got that kind of cachet Mm. he's become almost like a a little bit of a tarantino right like tarantino Mm. just comes into the script and says i'm making this and they go here's here's 200 million dollars see you later because Mm. he's quentin tarantino and these films people just turn up to watch it now because it's almost an event Mm. um and so i think wes anderson's kind of got that cachet a cool cachet now where People, it's a Wes Anderson film. I'm going. Yeah, he yeah. put his name on the poster. People will go. So he yeah. gets to make a film like Isle of Dogs, which I loved, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful movie. But I don't think it's not really a children's film. Um, a, a child could probably enjoy it, um, but it's not aimed at children. I think they're going to miss a lot of the gags in that. Agreed. Uh, I, I think that you, you're absolutely now on that. There's nothing outlandishly. Oh no, that is not child safe about that movie. But at the same time, it's dealing with very mature, actual kind of uh, themes and thoughts. Yeah, it, I, like, I haven't seen it for a couple of years now. But I mean, so it's, a, it's about a small boy and his dogs. So I guess to get away with it. But I mean, again, he's, you know, I, I don't know that he's making films for, for younger audiences. And I think he's probably the only person I can think of who could get away with making a high budget stop go animated animated period film of mm. any kind it isn't making a, its main pitch at children i mean mm. Pixar, for all their genius at making films parents can enjoy they're pitching the kids oh, of course yeah they know how to make their money um but i mean they just said their genius is that, that, that parents go cool i'll take your kid to see the Pixar film um where as opposed to oh, i'm gonna take it to see the troll movie Mm-hmm. Uh, I see my my, my I, I, someone who's related to me, who, who 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 may or may not be my sister, is now watching my on uh, at least he was a second ago on my Facebook stream here. Mm-hmm. It reminds me when I was a kid in school holidays, you get roused out of bed at an ungodly hour in the early afternoon, and and be told 
Taking your kids, your sister to the movies. <laughs> I Gully twice. I feel like it was twice. Oh, um, why would so anyone do that to themselves? Trashy animation in the nineties as well. As good as Robin Williams was in that film. Um, so uh, I mean, we've kind of gone a long way off it, but because <laughs> <laughs> here, I'm glad films like this still exist. I'm glad films yes. like uh, Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox um, still exist, and the people still making stop going animated mm. films because they. There's something about this film. It feels more tactile, more real. Mm-hmm. And it's not true, Alicia. I did not love that film. Um, price check on Prune Juice, Bob. Uh, <laughs> price check on Prune Juice. Um, that, that is a Fern Gully reference for the Fern Gully fans who are tuning in. I know our Russian bot <laughs> fans are big. Something more tactile or real about. Uh, I have a dog licking my feet. Go ahead, get away. Um, tactile or real about the. Um, the, the stop going animated film or a film mm-hmm. like Coraline, which was just gorgeous. So like it didn't feel, I mean, you never forget you're looking at something animated even when you see something mm-hmm. as amazing as Pixar. Yeah. But, but this, you could almost believe that they were real. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, I've got to say, have you watched Kubo and the two strings? I haven't. I know I should. It just looks kind of boring. Mm. <sighs> It's so good. Even just on a technical level, opening of that movie is, you know, that famous um, Japanese painting of the giant wave. Yeah. They essentially recreate that with stop motion animation and it is breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. I, I hear only good things about it. So mm. um, maybe I get to it at some point, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it doesn't scream to me. Mm. Um, well, that's all, right. for all the things that you are wonderful and a delight for, you are also a godless heathen and other things. I'm a godless heathen and awfully, awfully fussy, grumpy old curmudgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like it's set in the magic and stuff like that. And you know me in fantasy, we don't get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm sure I'll get to it at some point in time. I, I mean, <laughs> um, one thing that's been on my to do list for a while, speaking of animated films, mm. is, um, is to see the follow up film from the people who made Your Name. Oh, yes. Uh, Makoto cool? Shinkai, I think. Uh, Makoto, Makoto Shinkai, I'm pronouncing it poorly, but um, he uh, and his crew made a follow-up film called Weathering With You, which uh, came out last year uh, and apparently is excellent. Yeah, um, that's right. So uh, I've, I'm keen to get around, considering I loved your name so mm. very much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But... As we wrap up our um, review of Coraline, where are we going next? Well, I uh, I, I honestly hadn't actually had thought much about it. I just sort of had a quick squeeze while we were talking then, and I think there's only one obvious place to go considering technically next week is kind of Halloween week. Mm-hmm. Now it's the following Saturday. Mm-hmm. So, and we're going to go with something a bit spooky, a bit scary, a bit out there. Mm-hmm. There's only one person to follow, and that person is Keith David. Okay, so we're going to follow Keith. Here we have a choice because there are two two productions in his his filmography that stand out as being oh perfect. One of them is probably one of my all time favorite movies. Probably even my top five movies of all time mm-hmm. would be The Thing, mm-hmm. and the other one would be They Live. So two great John Carpenter films. Okay. Um, but I mean, it is Halloween. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is more of a science fiction movie. So, 
Well, I'm just going to do a check and see the availability. Um, so they live is not on streaming services, is not downloadable. Um, oh, apparently. it's downloadable. Oh, I mean, <laughs> legally, <laughs> legally speaking. Um, whereas... And when I, I, I always say I subscribe to four streaming services of people in mm -hmm. Hollywood. If you can't get your shit together and post your film on one of them, mm -hmm. not my problem. Meanwhile, the thing is streaming on Binge. It's on Foxtel now, and it's available to rent and buy on Amazon, um, Apple TV, and YouTube. And it's a spooky movie sort of kind yeah. of thing. Where the other one's more of a science fiction movie, um, action movie, which is still a lot of fun. But I feel like the thing will, you know, our 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 our. our, our uh, Halloween kind of theme. And yeah. I mean, I also feel like it is fair of me to leave you with a few different places to go. There's a little guy in it called Gert Russell who's done a couple of things. and Ah, uh, one or two, yeah. And there's a couple other blokes in there who's done some stuff. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. director had a, did a couple of films you might have heard of. So I feel like, you know, you'll, you'll have no trouble picking something good to follow up on uh, the thing. With. And I just feel like... The last couple of weeks, and they certainly haven't been unfair considering uh, Death Machine. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, they've been, I, I feel like they've been a bit of a slog. Uh, mm. I, I, I'm going to get shut. Calling A Nightmare Before Christmas a slog, I, I didn't love it. But, I mean, it, it's certainly not my my you know, bread and butter. Whereas mm. the thing, I, I think we both know what we're going to get with this one. Okay, so I have a request. Can I be in control of the next two? Yeah, I think we can live with that. Cool, because okay. I I know exactly where I'm going in that case. You want to do? You got a thing you want to do? That's cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting the keys to the castle. You have a thing. By the way, this is the two the 1982 film, not the 2011 sequel reboot piece of shit prequel prequel sequel garbage. Um, and it is not the original Howard Hawks, no, the no. thing that came from another world. I would like to actually come to the defense of the more recent The Thing, because it's not a bad movie. It is just utterly unnecessary. Completely. Sorry, I, did, I couldn't, couldn't make it through. I, I couldn't make it more than half an hour into it. Uh, it I, just, I just hated every minute of it. It was not good. For me, <laughs> um, I, I really hated it. Uh, and I guess part of it is when someone does a uh, attacks their film onto um your um yeah something you really enjoy mm. some of your favorites and they and they sort of trying to sort of swim along in its wake it's got a very high hurdle to bar to cross i mean like when we saw blade runner a couple of years ago yeah i mean i think you what well, we walked out of the cinema and talked said you hated that didn't you uh, <laughs> 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 like no, I actually really like that. Um, <laughs> the, the, base, the bar was set super high for Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and uh, fortunately for everyone involved, Denny Villeneuve cleared it comfortably. Mm -hmm. um, when you're going to tack your 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 product onto a film as good as the original thing, mm -hmm. uh, the bar is just so freaking high, and yeah. you're never going to clear it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it didn't come close for me. I mean, wait, at least. You know, if they're shooting for the moon, you're still going to get some kind of flight going, perhaps. Um, but like I said, when you get a release, the big, the biggest problem is it. It's basically a remake of the thing, but they are setting it as, oh, this is a prequel. This is what happened at the Swedish base, and like, what? 
no, part of the compelling thing of the thing is that we don't know that. And it it's not explained straight away why there's people shooting at a dog that's running through the snow. It's just an intriguing MacGuffin moment and they didn't need to do it. It's unnecessary. It's, it's like, a little bit like I always said the, uh, the Star Wars prequels were going to be a difficult uphill battle to end that well because mm-hmm. we all know how it ends. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah. There's, no, there's no mystery about Anakin, what's going to happen you know, at the end of Return of the Jedi, all those people like, what's going to happen to Vader, what's Luke going to do, is he, you know, like, so many unanswered questions, all those questions are answered Yeah, we know exactly who Anakin turns out to be and what he turns out to be, so it's always going to be a bit of a downer at the end of episode yeah. 3, so um, I wasn't surprised, well I don't think anyone's surprised considering the quality of the first two, but um, <laughs> before that I was like how are they going to make this good uh, it's, yeah. when, you, when you know what with a prequel, when you know what comes afterwards, it's a difficult task. But the thing mm-hmm. next week, you will hear us. It'll be a love fest next week, is because that that film. Yeah, I think we both enjoy it. Yeah, it's arguably week. my favorite live action movie. Um, that it shares that position with I think five movies, and they they vary depending on my t- mood. But yeah, it's it's phenomenal. So that is enough on what's happening next week. Now I want to know: Do you want to talk about? Um, one or two of your viewing pleasures for the past week? I could talk about one or two. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are you going to talk about? So I don't know if you got to it, but the new series of Brave New World came out uh, on Friday, I believe. Mm. And it is on Stan here in Australia. So if you are in another country, uh, eventually when this is released, uh, it's a Showtime production, I think. It's a Peacock production. Peacock production. Mm. So... Um, it, uh, you just Google it, I guess, find out where it's showing in your in your local neighbourhood mm. stand in Australia. So uh, this is based on the Aldous Huxley book. Um, kind of a mythically it, One of the most important books of the 20th century. I, I yeah. don't think I'm talking out of school by saying that. It's mm. even, you know, people will be, it's 1984 or it's Brave New World. They're kind of this dystopian mm-hmm. fiction. And a lot of, there's an argument, like a lot of people go, hey, we're living in 1984. And you kind of like, uh, I've seen arguments say that Huxley's book is maybe more accurate. Mm. Um, that's for a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those who haven't read Brave New World, shame on you. Uh, get around to it. In a utopia whose perfection hinges upon control of monogamy and privacy, members of a collective begin to question the rules, putting their regimented society on a collision course with forbidden love and revolution. So this is a rather interesting cast. Mm. Um, as we sort of kick off, uh, we don't really, I don't recognize any of these people until, uh, we get sort of outside, uh, a little bit deeper into the show. So, uh, eventually we meet, uh, John the Savage played by Alden Ehrenreich, mm-hmm. um, notable of course for playing Han Solo. Yes. Solo movie. And just to go back for, for those who don't watch or listen regularly, I thought he was really good in a solo, in, in a very poor movie. Mm-hmm. I thought he did a really good job as Han Solo. Actually, it was really solid. If it, in a better film, he he would have done. Mm-hmm. I think Alton Ehrenreich is a very good um, actor. He's been in a lot of kind of stinkers, but he's his performances in them have always been solid. If not teetering on the point of, oh, he could almost save this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the first his first credit since Solo two years ago. So I think it's fair to say that film didn't do. Yeah, his, uh, career any favors, which is shame mm. because, as I said, it's not his fault that film sucked. That goes to yeah. uh, Ron Howard uh, and Kathleen Kennedy. 
Um, Demi Moore <laughs> pops up in this. And I'm like, and I'm just going, hang on, is that Demi? Is Demi Moore? And like, um, in a really, oh, really, really, yeah, oh. really interesting little role for her, and like, um, quite a big name. Uh, those are probably the two names you'll at your faces. You'll instantly go, yeah, no, them. The others are, are also young, good-looking folk who are on the up and coming. Uh, we have. Uh, Jessica Brown Finlay, you might recognize, was in an episode of Black Mirror. If you're a big fan of Black Mirror like me, she plays mm-hmm. Lenny in the Crown. Um, so we were introduced to this this world where it's a little bit like Gattaca in parts, where people aren't really born anymore. They mm-hmm. are sort of gestated, if you will. Almost everyone sort of artificially uh, created rather than through, you know, conception and then being born and um Everyone have they have a, a very clear caste system from your yeah, alpha plus to alpha to beta plus to beta right down to epsilon, I think was the bottom one. Uh and we meet Lenina, uh Lenina Crown, who's sort of our protagonist, and she's being told off by her boss, uh Bernard Marx, played by Harry Lloyd, who uh, looks like a name I should remember, but I, I don't think I've seen him in anything. Um, and he's basically telling her off for having a monogamous relationship. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's not like he's a, he's her boyfriend or anything. He's like her boss or something. Uh, who, and he's telling her off for having a monogamous relationship. Oh, that's where Harry Lloyd is probably most famous for. He played um, Daenerys' brother in Game of Thrones. As the universal rule. Mm-hmm. On this show is yes. if someone is in a production and looks like they should be somebody, and they go, "I don't know who that guy <laughs> yeah. is." They were on Game of Thrones. So that's yep. what happens. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, especially if they're British. Um, yep. So um, Bernard is assigned a task of actually trying to figure out. How, is later after he's told off Lenina for for only sleeping with one person, um, he's assigned a task to investigate uh, a, a death of an epsilon who are at the bottom level cast. Um, and in doing so, starts to wonder if the uh, Epsilon has committed suicide, which is unheard of in this utopian world in which they live in. Um, aside from that, we sort of juxtapose this utopian world of of, of, of Lenina and Bernard with the uh, a, an almost um, Disneyland-esque theme park that it sits outside the borders of the utopian world in which Lenina and Bernard live, and it's mm-hmm. called Savage Land. Um, which is a, a theme park for the people from the Utopia to come and visit, which um, you know has uh, displays and, and shows uh, of savagery, including you know um, uh, capitalism, shopping. Their uh, version of Westworld. A bit like Westworld or <laughs> um, a monogamy, where there's actually an actual wedding ceremony and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and it's all a put on, and, and that's where John the Savage comes in. Old and Eric Rice character is a he works at Savage Land. He lives separately outside the park with his um his mother, who is played by um, Demi Moore. Um, and he sort of ramped, sort of uh, you know what he called keel key hauled into um uh, helping with a uh, you know uh, sort of an ongoing revolutionary group who are sort of trying to use the park to make a political statement about being used as um, their lives and their way of life being used as an amusement for the people from the uh, the utopian world. Mm. So I don't want to give away any spoilers for people who haven't 
uh, seen it or had a chance to read it. How much of this have you watched? Because there's nine episodes, right? Nine episodes. I'm three episodes in. Okay. Um, So I I, I don't have a limited time to watch watch everything, unfortunately. But um, uh, I thought it was actually trepidatious, if that's a word, Mm. uh, (laughs) at the start of this because it's so often something like, I think, you know, I thought I, I was quite excited early on by Watchmen and I liked some of the early episodes, but it kind of felt like it took itself so goddamn seriously. It ran out of steam <laughs> halfway through for me. And and a product like this where it's based on a book I really enjoyed and and I think really topical, I, I felt like there was a lot of different ways I could go wrong with this. Mm. Um, it's not perfect by any stretch of imagination. Um, it, it suffers from... Uh, the same effect a lot of shows do these days. We talked about Condor a mm. few months ago, where it was populated largely by, uh, you know, anonymously attractive person number one and anonymously attractive person number two, with no mm. real personality or character. Right? You don't really give a shit who they are. You know, the guy might be the protagonist, but he really is just, and you know, uh, Joe Everyman, generically good-looking person number one. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I just suffer a little bit from this, apart from someone like Alden Ehrenreich, who, and maybe it's because I, he's been in movies and you recognize him. But for me, he and Demi Moore, when they're on screen, really grab my attention back in. Mm. And I'm sucked back into the story because they're such wonderful actors and they work so well together. Mm. And I'm immediately pushed back out again, well, let, further out, I should say, not completely out of the story, by the rest of the cast because they mm. are just generic good-looking person, which, I mean, they probably should be considering they're all being genetically engineered. They're not going to yeah. genetically engineer any fat, ugly people. But um, <laughs> um, so they're all going to be sort of generic good-looking person. But I don't know any of them are good enough actors to really grab my attention. But, I mean, mm. and, you know, that could be a deliberate creative choice in the sense yeah. that we are inside this generic utopia, which is, you know, perfect, safe, no pain, yada, yada, yada. Mm. Um so the fact that it, it, it everyone sort of lacks individuality is probably a, a, a choice they've made, but it, it does tend to alienate me a little bit. Mm. But um, three episodes, you know, I've actually get it, some some seriously entertaining set pieces in the show, okay. and some shocking stuff happens. Um, it, it's it's a lot of fun um, it, at times, which is not what I expected from a story about Brave New World. I feel <laughs> like they've updated it a little bit. Okay. Just kind of what it needed. So if you're going in expecting a pure adaptation of Huxley's book, sorry, uh, I think it was written. I don't remember when the book was actually written, but uh, oh, I it's going to be about 100 years ago now. Um, I'll get to it. But I recall them like flying helicopters around and stuff like that. And the Model T, they worshipped the Model T because um, uh, 1931. 1932, yeah. Yeah, 31, 32. So they worshipped the T. The Model T was the kind of the thing. So yeah. if I recall correctly. So um, that's yeah. it. I mean, when when you look at so much sci-fi, they in in good quality sci-fi, like um, like in the original Brave New World or lots of Philip K. Dick stuff and Arthur C. Clarke and things like that, they do prognosticate all these amazing things. And it's like, yeah, the, well, that's that's out of date now because technology no has exploded. Yeah, no one's flying helicopters. Because <laughs> um, you can take a helicopter down with two carefully placed shots from a pistol. I saw that film too. Um, <laughs> I think where it gets a little bit topical is the idea of Soma. 
Yes. Um, which is, you know, the, the drug that everybody in the utopia takes to basically dull their emotions and feel no pain and yada, yada, yada. I mean, there's an argument to be said that a lot of things we do and have in, in society these days are non-chemical versions of Soma. Mm. Uh, and there's an essay in that for someone, I'm sure, is someone <laughs> on that today, but I'm not going to go down that path. Other than to say, but I liked it. I really quite enjoyed it uh, so far. I'm keen to keep going. It's kept me interested enough to go back and watch some more. So okay. hopefully I'll find the time to um, to get around to actually finish finish the season. It's uh, said it's not perfect, but mm-hmm. pretty good. Pretty good. Cool. Okay. Excellent. I'll quickly cover off one more in the sense yeah. that um, I, I quickly stop. I did watch a, a new true crime show on Netflix called American Murder. The, uh, the family next door, the woman, the wife next door. I can't remember the exact title, but um, I'll, I'll quickly uh, look it up so I can get, tell you exactly what it is. The family next door. You like true crime? Yes. Watch that. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was a quick current topic of discussion. I enjoyed it. Um, but I was going to say, uh, what I wanted to quickly cover is I went back and had another go. It's my third go at Star Trek Discovery. Oh, yes. I saw this. Um, so a little bit of background. I am a fan of Star Trek since I can remember. I jumped into the new season, new series a couple of years ago when we first premiered and found myself not hugely taken by it initially. But by the end of season one, I was on board with Star Trek Discovery. It had some interesting stuff mm. going on. And it managed I managed to get past all the political PC nonsense that they were throwing in there, which I felt was completely superfluous. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, and and for okay, fine, no worries, you know. When they're gonna put gay characters in for the sake of having a gay character, for me, I, I find it annoying. You know, like fine, she just carried like it's like when they turned um, check um, the what's his name's character? Oh, um, Sulu in in the the last Star Trek movie. They just sort of ran on. Oh, he's gay now, and you're like, well, now hang on. Just because you know the, the actor who played him originally is gay, he's gay now. Wouldn't it have been a more brave choice to have made Spock or Kirk gay? But anyway, mm. um, <laughs> it, it, it was it's 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 you know it's. Window dressing, uh, and yeah. I don't like it. But anyway, I made it past all that stuff that they were doing in Discovery, the swearing, um, you know, the anyone can die at any moment, moment stuff that they were doing, and mm-hmm. was excited for season two. Season two was a massive, massive letdown for me. I couldn't get through it. I just, I got yeah. halfway through, and the storyline was so convoluted and boring and all over the shop. I didn't care anymore, and I was, and I noped out. Yeah. And I've going to be, and then, you know, the same uh, secret hideout and um, Kurtzman and co bought us the, the tragically awful Star Trek Picard yeah. um, earlier this year, I think it was. Or was it I like? hung on to hope that that was going to land really well for a very long time of that series, but it just didn't. It was bad. Yeah. It was really bad. And, uh, mm. you know, I just, it annoys me to see how many Trek fans go, oh, it's good. And you're like, no, mm. it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was really kind of like out, but I'm like, I've seen it. Season three has just premiered mm-hmm. and it's been renewed for a fourth season. Um, okay. Very surprising considering how poorly it's rated for what I understand. Um, but anyway, I thought to myself and I keep hearing people go, oh, it was so good. The end was season two was so good. And like, mm. I really couldn't be asked watching another half a season just to find out at the end of season two was any good. So I just skipped to the end. Um, yeah. So 
take that caveat. It probably wasn't the ideal way to watch it, but mm. end of season two, uh, it, it really wasn't ideal because a whole bunch of stuff's gone on. There's like they've got some sort of data on the computer that somebody called the control or something are trying to get off them, and they uh, try to blow up the ship to get rid of the data, but the uh, the data won't let them blow up the ship, so they have to. Uh, um, go for ridiculous. I just got Galaxy Quest in my in my head now. <laughs> it, it's, it's yeah. When Why would they it, even put that here? Yeah, it's it's difficult to take it seriously. It takes itself it takes itself very seriously. Mm. Um, but basically, uh, they should just change the name of this show. By the way, from Star Trek Discovery to Star Trek Burnham, because that's what this show is. Like, um. I think the real strength of Star Trek in the past was it was its ensemble cast. Mm. You know, like we had in Next Gen, we had Picard and Riker, who were probably your, well, Picard for sure was your, probably the main character being the captain. But there would be whole episodes where he would not do a whole lot and you'd be all about, you know, yeah. Geordie and Data going on an adventure or, heaven forbid, Troy doing something because they were the worst episodes. <laughs> um, but, you know, they actually, you know, and, and I guess the problem with it for me is that, it, it, the seasons now, uh, Star Trek Discovery is designed to have a season long arc. Mm. And it's all about what Burnham does. So Burnham has to build a time suit and then like jump into the future to take the the discovery into the future so oh that the data that's on it can't be used by these nefarious groups in the past. So it actually, tra- they travel to, you know, like a thousand years into the future to actually escape from these people who are trying to hunt them down, which is a nifty idea, but um, it's just so convoluted. So, yeah, it's there was a character who does all this stuff all the way through, all the way through season two. There's a mysterious character who saves the discovery a bunch of times, and it's like they call her the Red Angel. And of course, at the end of the season, we find out the Red Angel is just Burnham going back in time uh... doing a bunch of shit. And it's just, it's so cringeworthy. It's really awful. <sighs> like every good idea they come up with or interesting art concept they come up with instantly gets cut off at the knees by four or five really bad scenes. Mm. Um, and, you know, things that I liked early on mm. so uh, that were really kind of Michelle Yao playing Philippa Giorgio and now she plays the Mirror Universe Giorgio. Mm. Don't even that's a whole whole thing about what the fuck that actually means. Um and like initially it seemed like a really, really cool like a concept to have like the bring back the mirror universe, because that was of course that's, yeah. that's, that's canon trek. That's been used a couple of times in the old series, and it was mm. interesting to see what they were gonna do with it. But then but now she's just like parody. She's like, you know, she's like nefarious evil character number twelve, and you'd be like, she should be wandering around twirling a mustache going, <laughs> You That's know, always uh, always the problem with um, great villains in movies and TV shows. They sort of like strike a chord with audiences in their their kind of debut appearances. Like, wow, that villain is really cool. I want to see more of that. So, like, okay, let's turn them into an anti-hero, or let's just keep bringing them back because, yeah, you're not going to get sick and tired of the same thing, and it's not going to have re- uh, diminished returns. No, not at all it is it always happens loki is generally regarded as one of the very best villains in the mcu and now he's fucking joke and it's detrimental to tom, uh, tom hiddleston as an actor and it you know going back and seeing him as the 
kind of the hidden villain in Thor and the villain of the first Avengers movie where he's actually an interesting and competent um, foil for the heroes. It's it, every single time afterwards, he's just, he's just a joke. And it's like, okay, fine. If they bring back Killmonger, they're probably going to go, oh yeah, you're now actually resurrected into a puppet. <laughs> oh, trust me, they can find a way now. They probably would considering the uh, sad news about Chadwick Boseman. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's what they've done. It's just like it's, mm. it used to be cartoons as kids where, like, you know, the bad guy and the good guys would came up for one episode. Mm. You're really just waiting for because you, you, you've watched this cartoon 50,000 times, even mm. if you've never seen it before. You know what's going to happen. The bad guy's going to double cross yeah. them at the end. Is that's what the bad guy does? And, like, and like you just waiting for Michelle Yao to do that. And whether she does or doesn't, it just ceases being interesting. And yeah. again, Huge caveat next to the whole thing is I didn't watch just miss a giant chunk of episodes mm. in the middle of that season because I just couldn't stomach it anymore. So it's a two-parter. It's a two-parter to finish season two, and then they scoot forward in time to do some spoilers, guys. But I mean, it's been out for a year. If you were going to watch it, mm. um, and uh, yeah, that, that they were ever going to not get away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in and start of season three, which I did watch. Mo- I think I did I finish. I think I did finish the first episode of season three. It took me a couple mm-hmm. of sittings because it was also very annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have it's a little better. It was basically Michael Burnham crash lands on a planet. In doing so, she crashes into someone's spaceship and survives, which is a nifty trick. Um, and triples his spaceship. Uh, and then they, you know, need to again. So basically, they recreate enemy mine. I don't know what that is. That's um, actually a surprisingly good movie where a human and an alien ha- um, in, that have been in a war, ba- basically they have to work through their own prob- difficulties and the, the, the war and the segregation between the two of them in order to survive. It's actually surprisingly good. Yeah, Things a little like bit like that. Basically, she now needs this guy's help to figure out. She can't contact Discovery. I mean, Discovery's come through mm. the time for you as well. She now needs this guy's help to figure out. She can't contact Discovery. I mean, Discovery's come through the time for you as well, and she can't contact them. She needs his help to do that. Mm. She pissed because she fucked up his ship. Uh, and, you know, they go to a local trading post nearby, and they sort of have this scene where they walk over a hill and overlook this, you know, sci-fi... Tra- trading post, I guess it's waiting for one of them to go, uh, a more wretched hive of scum and villainy you'll never find. You know, <laughs> I was like, going to say, what's the missing parts and um, flux capacitors? Or, you know. You know? <laughs> uh, and they, they need to go in. Anyway, stuff happens when they get in there. I anyway. need to get some power converters. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Toshi Station. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, it's not terrible. It's just not good though. Like, I mean, uh, it's if Star Trek Picard had been like this and every episode mm. was all about Picard and only about Picard, I mm. would have been fine with that because that was on the poster. It said Star Trek Picard. Yeah. I'm signing up for that. I want to see him doing stuff. I, I don't want to, I don't want to have to, um, I don't want to have to, you know, watch all the other boring stuff that was going on in that show, all the mm. stuff on the ball cube. Ugh. Uh, That's it. It, it. it does seem like they've got a real problem with naming of these series because Picard, Picard, by the end of it, it, kind of just became a tangential character. There's a, oh yeah, he's also here. We forgot about Grandpa, <laughs> and and then in Discovery, it's like look at all of these people, and then we're actually just going to focus on this one. It's all about Burnham at the end of the day, and yeah. and so the entirety of season three, episode one, is about Burnham and the other guy she's crash into i'm sure the other characters will come back at some point in time but like 
No, not good. Uh, but the best okay. thing, that, the best films that Trek ever did, I think, film wise, are when think of something like First Contact, which I know is a controversial choice, is one of their better films, but hmm. I think it's great. Um, what happens at the start of the film? The crew is split up. Yeah, you got Picard on the ship doing his thing. You got the guys down down on the planet doing their thing. Everybody's trying to, you know, sort of be cutting between the two. And the whole point of it is to try and put them back together again to try and, you know, to, to get the to, to overcome yes. the problem that they're doing. Absolutely. That would be fine. Okay, Burnham's on the planet. She's doing her thing. What's going on in Discovery? Tell us that. Maybe we can cut and choose between the two of them. And meanwhile, on Discovery, pretty much have another it's, game of ping pong. It, it wouldn't cut to Discovery because. What are they going to do? Burnham's not there. <laughs> on Discovery when Burnham's not there. And like, this is none of this is a, a, a diss on Sinequa Martin Green mm. because I think she's a fine actress. Mm. And why wouldn't you sign up for this part? Because shit, like, the whole show's about her. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, she's, uh, you know, I, you know, people complained about, um, Ray in Star Wars being a, was it a Mary Sue? It's the American <laughs> say. Um, and I, it's so that with the burn, but she's good at everything. She's nothing she can't do. There's mm. no menace. There's no, you know, real concern. She'll overcome whatever the fucking problem is. Like, oh my god, she's surrounded by aliens with guns. She'll figure it out. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I just I'm super tempted to come back and watch one or two more episodes just out of pure bloody mindedness to go how much worse can this shit get um <laughs> see that, that, that's when, exactly the reason why i go ahead and watch adam sandler movies you know it's like how bad can he go touche <laughs> um how, how much can i defile this thing that i love mm. um speaking of before we get off of star trek have, have, have um have you finished your thoughts on discovery i'm just gonna say one more quick thing mm. on this but basically um the fact that the, the best thing that has come out of Secret Hideout and uh, Kurtzman's reign mm. at, on on the, the um, Star Trek front is Lower Decks. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that and that's not good. Lower Decks isn't good. It's not. It's just not terrible. It's it's fine, <laughs> fine. It's okay, especially if you're a young kid and they want to introduce mm. kids. But it, it, if that is the best thing on your CV that's come out of your Oh, I don't know why they keep giving this man a job. Okay, so my my question regarding Star Trek, obviously, a while ago we got uh, news that Captain Janeway was going to be coming back to the TV. Yep. You've resampled a little bit of the most recent Star Trek. Do you want them to go there? Or no. Would you rather? No, them no, no, no. It's been made for Nickelodeon. Um, it's an animated another animated Star Trek show. Uh, a group of teenagers steal a derelict star fleet vessel and use it to explore the galaxy. Now, that could be interesting um, if done right. I think they're actually stealing my idea for a uh, Star Trek. Porkies in space. Porkies in space. Um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, tell you what, I wrote, he might do that considering he got some crazy ideas that he's doing right now, uh, Mr. Kirsten. Um, mm -hmm. No. I, what the hell is Star Trek doing on freaking Nickelodeon? I feel like Star Trek has entirely lost its identity. I would 100% agree with that. I mean, like, I guess this is a bad thing, but it's trying to do, trying to make content for children. Probably not. I mean, it's. I mean, why can't it be everything to anyone? I mean, Star mm. Wars has its main, you know, it's, it's Skywalker tr trilogy, and it was doing mm -hmm. Clone Wars as well, which was targeted at a younger mm -hmm. audience. And I know 
a lot of people quite liked that. I think. Yeah, um, it did. It did some good storytelling in Clone Wars and um, um, uh, uh, Rebel Alliance as well. So I guess in theory, a, a science fiction. Um, I, I don't think Trek is Star Wars. It's not that mm. big. Um, but it, it, well, I mean, Lower Decks is kind of. I mean, it's kind of like Trek for Rick and Morty fans. Mm. Um, yeah, it's sort of. A, it, I know some people I've seen who are Trek fans go, "Oh, my kids like it." Uh, and like, oh, I guess, okay. like it's fine. I guess if it gets kids into it, but like, I just no, I, I I don't understand. You're right. It's kind of lost its way. It's it's mm. just kind of doing way too much. So this is now if we have Star Trek Discovery. Apparently, we have Star Trek Picard season two still technically mm-hmm. going to be happening. We have Strange New Worlds. We have mm-hmm. Lower Decks, and we have Star Trek Prodigy. And apparently there's rumors going around of something with um, the, the guy, Captain Sisko from DS9 can be coming back to do something else as well, apparently. Which one is uh, Janeway supposed to be in? He's going to be in Star Trek Prodigy. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it's that's a lot of track. And I feel like, in, interestingly, the, the Star Trek universe should have more possibility to be more diverse because it is so big and because of the very successful tv shows of yonder when they were introducing new races and different cultural elements of them and the amount of canon that has been built out around them i feel like there's more to play with more to safely play with in that versus star trek uh, star wars sorry it's and a universe for sure and a lot of stories yeah. one could tell in it mm. um i if you haven't picked it already, listeners uh, and viewers, uh, I uh, don't think there are wonderful stories to tell and a lot of stories one could tell in the Star Trek universe. Kirchner hasn't succeeded in telling one yet. So um, one particular, he, haven't, he hasn't succeeded in telling one good story yet like or one successful show yet. The, the, well. the, the Star Trek reboot was good. He wasn't involved in that. Was That was Abrams. He wasn't one of the writers? I'm going to put that down to J.J. Abrams, but I think he might have been involved. But I am going to say I, I don't put that in the Kurtzman universe. That is a different That's product. fair. That's a fair point. Yep. Um, you know, Robert or- Roberto Orchi was involved in that, who I think a lot of Star Trek fans maybe. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Roberto Orchi and Alex Kurtzman were the writers. It's a little bit like how Damon Lindelof got a, a leg up by Abrams as well and went off to make his own shitty television shows after working on Lost. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you, I like the... I, I'm one of the few people who likes the Kelvin universe, the first two anyway. Uh, and that's and a lot of people don't like that as well. Um, but, yeah, I just don't think he's told one... In his TV shows, at least, okay, mm. I don't think on his own, his reign doing the TV shows... He hasn't told had a particularly successful run on any of them yet, so mm. maybe you should get one right before you start doing five. I think the problem with Kurtzman is he can actually be a really good writer, but he has, in the last kind of 10, 12 years, been pretty much involved in almost everything that has um, had a pilot season come out and died. And I feel like, okay, you are clearly doing too fucking much, dude. Cut back. Bring up the quality, not go with quantity, please. I would say I don't think he is talented at all. I don't think he's ever done anything particularly good on his own. I really um, like the free stuff. On his own, yeah, I think that he's since his split with uh, 
Roberto, I feel like his quality has uh, definitely dropped. Um, there. I mean, I, think I don't think he's been involved in successful stuff, mm. but none of that, I think, was strictly speaking his stuff. Like mm. Alias, uh, Fringe, that's Abrams, right? Yeah, that's true. So that's he's true. on board, sure, and he's doing stuff. So he's got that on his resume. Mm. But how much did he? Was he the driving creative force behind mm. stuff like Alias and Fringe? I doubt it. Because yeah. JJ Abrams is the bigger name, and he, and it's all post lost. So he would yeah. Abrams' word goes, and same thing with um the same sort of thing with the Retrek reboots. It, it was Abrams's film, right? Um, he was just along for the ride. Yeah. And other than that, when the stuff he's been singularly responsible for is stuff like The Island, The Mummy, The Amazing Spider Man Two, Now You See Me Two. I mean, almost everything he's done has middling been, at best. At best, and that's and that's generous. Um, yeah, and like I know it's an it's a it's an online sport now to kick the Kurtzman. Um, um, there are people out there who <laughs> truly hate him, but I, I I I hate pretty much everything he's done with Trek. <laughs> and that's all I have to say on that. I, like, I know it's unfashionable, and everybody's like, "Oh, you're just a hater, and you're toxic, and blah blah blah." I'm like, well, it sucks. Um, that's that's absolutely entitled. Uh, you're entitled to your opinion. Um, if people, other people enjoy it, then good. But you know, what about <laughs> Star Trek? If you've got all of these shows, give us something that we actually like, you know, actually serve all of the audiences that you've got. I mean, in theory, he is. I mean, Discovery is at an, at an older audience, and I imagine Strange New Worlds might be as well. But you know, yes, it might be aimed at an older audience, but it's a completely different type of storytelling and TV narrative compared to star trek the next generation and even deep space nine and voyager those ones they had a very different flow to them and their pace was very different and the way that they told their stories was just inherently different to everything else that modern trek has brought out i think we talked about it with picard Mm. like one of the creators or writers or producers i forget his name basically came out and said i want people to hate this basically i want to kick people yeah. i want to I, I want the people who like traditional trek to hate this i'm glad i want, they, to, I want to challenge them and you're like yeah, i'm okay with that but i feel like the people behind this stuff mm. the the, the, the secret hideout kirsman product mm. have a political point to make yeah and, uh, and they have a political particular political perspective and i'm i'm fine with politics and tell it i mean original star trek was political you know the first on-screen interracial kiss was on star trek yeah um it's not a problem for me it's just i feel that they have they've come in they've gone i have an agenda and i'm going to use this television show to push it we need to tick all these boxes because that's what we want to do for society rather than this will make compelling story and i don't have a problem with people Mm. trying to push i actually probably don't really have a problem with their politics per se it's just that it doesn't fit the show or fit it into parts of a show that don't make sense and overall it brings the show's quality down for me so yeah uh, I look, no one can say I haven't given it a fair sh- shake mm. and given it a go to try and impress me. And I really am disappointed that I, I think mm. it's just something. I mean, it makes two, Star Wars and Star Trek, unfortunately, I, I'm I, I'm going to have to put in the uh, I'm not terribly excited about column. Mm. Well, just, you know, I, th- I think maybe maybe we'll leave this. Uh, we won't discuss it now, but for, for conversation for next week, what? franchises from your youth still produce content now 
that still engages you? My Little Pony. <laughs> um, and I will expand that to music as well. Okay. Well, it's yeah. only I've dominated the floor for a while. What's going on in your world? So I um, smashed through uh, The New Girl, um, which was released onto, um, I think it was Amazon Prime Video and Netflix. Uh, the Zoe Deschanel-led, um, very stereotypical, you know, uh, group of friends in a New York, uh, in a, a, a U.S. flat, and shenanigans ensue and love uh, conquers all, all that stuff. Um, I really hated the first episode, but I thought, fuck it, I'll just keep going because I'm running out of things to binge on <laughs> while I'm sitting at home doing nothing. And I managed to watch all five seasons of it, and I ended up kind of getting uh, feeling very endeared and in- generally invested in the show. But the thing that I want to call out about that show is the final season. Um, because it relates to another final season, which finally got released. So seasons one to four, it's your very typical kind of generally friends template of a sitcom about friends living together and uh, romantic connections, building, breaking apart, building and all that stuff. What they do interesting in the final season is they do a jump cut to three years later. And it actually makes it a very interesting, compelling thing because all of the characters, they have written the characters and developed them and they've had this time away. So it's not just a rehash final series. So like, oh, it's a fond farewell for all these characters. So we've just got to tie off all the loose ends. It's like, no, we're going to give you different things for that final season is not a rehash or so like remember when we did this like even playing as great as seinfeld that was their final episode was just a giant clip show yeah and i hate that kind of stuff and that brings me to the final season of season 12 of the big bang theory finally released on netflix um on friday and it's bad it's it's not as funny as any of it. It has been consistently diminished returns. I don't think that there should be any comedy show that I don't think there's any comedy show that can go on for more than ten seasons before it gets really pretty much drag. Um, and the final season is all about tying tying off loose ends, and it's like okay, no, this this don't don't you see that this is cheapening cheapening everything that was before and you're just doing this because oh fuck we haven't got anything to step up into the big bang theories big shoes that are now emptying um we just do one more season why not that gives us another year to to tread water and find that next big thing and it's it's really fucking annoying moving on to my actual topic of discussion is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Now, this is a show that has been uh, kicked out of the co- into the cold by, I think, two different production companies after like four or five seasons. It was on one network in the US. Then it got picked up by another one for, for the next couple. Then it got um, was going to be cancelled, and then Netflix had picked it up. And the first six seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, led by uh, Andy Sattenberg, um, with the other big name that you'll know in it is Terry Crews. Um, and 
I started watching it and it's great. It's the, the romance elements are in there, but they don't fart around with the will they won't they, which is such a delightful change for a sitcom. They just are like, yeah, okay, this is what's happening. Oh, look, these people are grown up enough in a ridiculously stupid comedy show that they are grown up enough adults to know that you can actually have an argument with someone without one tiny thing breaking that relationship apart, being the end of it, and then they're going to spend three years going, oh, maybe we'll get back together, maybe we won't. It's like, no, you fucking talk about this shit and move on. And it's so refreshing. Um, Andy Samberg is um, very good in this. I didn't know him from his SNL stuff, and he was apparently reticent to join the show because he wasn't sure if he wanted to go into another TV show straight off of SNL. But I'm glad he did. He um, He's in the first series as... Uh, I'm going to bring up the cast list because there's a lot of really good ones in there, but I've not known any of their work before. But they do take probably five or six episodes of the first series to start really getting their finding their characters and gelling together as, as a, um, as a cast. I feel like it's a very SNL ish sort of show and cast. I feel like a lot of people might've made their names in that kind of. I would imagine. So I would imagine. So, so you've got Andy Samberg as Jake Peralta. Um, There's Stephanie uh, Beatriz. Uh, who plays Rosa Diaz, Terry Crews plays Terry Jeffords, and he's essentially playing Terry Crews, I think, in many ways. A lot of it does. Yeah, but he's he's charming. He's delightful. He's he's really quite lovely. Um, Melissa Fumero plays Amy Santiago. Uh, Joe Latrulio plays Charles Boyle. Uh, possibly the one to steal the show for me is Andre um, Breyer, who plays Captain Raymond Holt. And he is brilliant in that, that dead, ultimate deadpan because everything is said at this manner and he doesn't smile and he doesn't do anything. And it's played for jokes so, so and very well. It helps him and he's actually done a lot of police procedurals before himself. He was uh, on, on um, Homicide Life in the Streets in the 90s and then he was on again um, Law and Order. Okay, and okay. He, he actually played, yeah, those, those shows are connected, by the way. Uh, we're in the same uh, Wolf universe. The, uh, uh, the guy made that. It was his Dick Wolf. Okay. Um, but, yeah, because he plays that. Um, that's probably where a lot of people maybe would I recognize him in the, in the commercials for it. Cause I'm like, oh, he's the guy from Homicide. Yeah, yeah, cool. Because um, I got, um, I decided to give a give Brooklyn Nine Nine a go because it's actually in the shared universe with the new girl because they have a crossover episode. Um, they don't play too much into it; it's just sort of like extended cameos at best in each of those series. But um, it got me interested enough, and it was just really kind of turn your brain off and laugh at some fun things. Um, so it was really just enjoyable comedy. If you want something that is not your templated sitcom bullshit that we are we have been spoon-fed since friends blew up and across the whole globe it's nice to have something that's irreverent not trying to be political it's just all these people clearly really enjoy playing their characters and it's just great seeing them interact and they're funny with each other they you can see that they're having a laugh apparently every time they film it they film it as scripted and then they'll kind of go okay we're going to do two takes where we can just improv it and they'll work out what's funniest and then um 
sort of put together the um the show based on whether it was the scripted one or an improv one and i think that bring that that lends an air of kind of real humor to it rather than this kind of uh very stiff comedy that seems to be produced now and the other key thing that i wish more shows would do it doesn't have a laughter track so it's great you can actually laugh at things that you feel funny and you don't suddenly go oh my god like watching three and a half men or something like that it's fucking painful i hate laughter tracks don't tell me when to laugh okay I, I've never had a kind of visceral reaction, but to oh, a, I, I a hate it. Track, I hate but, it. Um, mm. It's one of the worst things about black books and the IT crowd. No, those shows are funny on their own. Let me laugh when I want to laugh. <laughs> and they have their they have their serious moments in this as well, but they never take themselves too seriously. So it's just really, really enjoyable. So it was just just a quick talk on that one. Um, and then I'm just going to finish off another quick topic of conversation because we are going a bit long today. I decided to continue torturing myself in many ways. I thought, you know what? Andy Sernberg, I respect him. I watched six seasons of, of his show and I really enjoyed him. I'm going to watch something else. And I've watched a lot of, you know, I've heard his voice in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 1 and 2. Um, and he does the voice of Johnny in the Hotel Transylvania series. But I wanted to see him act. Unfortunately, the only movie that I was able to find straight away was the Adam Sandler movie, That's My Boy. And... Have you learned? Have you learned yet? Hey, I take these these punches so that other people don't have to. <laughs> I am a noble soul. That's my boy. Okay, right, my so, boy. so this is the 2012 uh, film. It's uh, so-called comedy. Yes. Um, while in his teens, uh, Adam Sandler's Donnie fathered a son, Todd, um, who um, Donnie named Han Solo, um, and raised him as a single parent until Han Solo, Todd. Um, decided to effectively disappear um, on his 18th birthday. Now, jo uh, Donnie resurfaces into Todd's life um, just days before Todd's wedding, um, looking for um, $46,000 um, to pay uh, uh, for his tax or else he's going to go to prison. And um, obviously, they, as the tagline will say, hilarity ensues. Unfortunately, it's not funny. It's gross. It's crap. This is, you know, it's, I don't know what Susan Sarandon's doing. She's got a cameo in this. I think, I think it must be the Andy Samberg um, Lonely Island connection with Dick in a Box and uh, Mother Lover and that sort of stuff. Um, because I don't know why else she'd be in this movie. Money. Yeah, maybe. Um, she didn't get divorced recently, did she? I don't know. I don't know. I think her and Andy Dufresne are still together. Tim Robbins. There we go. Um, but who knows? This movie is just a train wreck. It there's. I don't. I don't know what it's trying to do. It, it's insult comedy, but it's like everything about it is based around essentially Donny and uh, Adam Sandler's character is kind of stunted growth. What a change for her, Adam Sadler, hey, to be someone who's essentially 
perennially stuck in the late 80s and 90s and that's his solution to solve everything and suddenly for some reason all of the adults um grown adults in this thing who are all tied to uh, tight up and serious they gel with this and they love him for it oh wow what a big change of pace for adam sandler and yet everything is just insulting to those mediums and it it's it's trash it really is trash and it's it's got a meta score of 31 percent and some people, I was looking online, there have been some critics saying, oh, this is arguably the worst movie ever made. It tries really fucking hard to get that, to get that type. It really puts effort into it because the amount of, the, the level of gross out, they had to have really been trying to hit that. And it's it's just bizarre. It's so weird. The opening sequence is young Donny kind of playing it being really cool and he's saying oh i don't like girls anymore and one of his friends is walking down the corridor with him at school and says oh yeah me neither i think i like guys he's like no i like women and uh, he starts aggressively flirting with this young teacher and then she says oh go uh, you're in detention and then straight away she's being ridiculously flirtatious and letching onto him they she drags him into her office and they start having sex and there's another kid there it's like wait what this is pedophilia what the fuck are you doing making this comedy and it's not funny what the fuck and then that it's just so weird but then the weirdest thing about it is for about 80 percent of the movie the character of donnie there is bizarrely so many similarities to donald trump <laughs> it's weird he takes um you know he takes credit for everything else in the world and he aggrandizes it all of his actions to be so monumental it's like holy shit is is this somehow cu current like what this is this is just weird but unfortunately, unlike Donald Trump, who we hope will learn his lesson, Donnie doesn't. He doesn't really learn anything. No one really learns anything. I would go out on a limb and say, I mean, is there a chance that, Don that, uh, that uh, Donnie or Mr. Trump are going to learn a lesson anytime soon? Mm. So I, I just don't get this movie. So this is another movie on Netflix starring Adam Sandler that your resident uh, punching bag has taken for all of you fine viewers and listeners so that you don't have to. Fair, fair. <laughs> it's, it's public service, really. I, I, yeah. I don't find Andy Sandberg funny at all, ever. In anything he's done, I, I think he's deeply, deeply unfunny. Other than, I'm going to say, I think Lonely Island's pretty good. Um, some of their music is actually mm. probably as close as he's ever got to funny. But um, I don't get, I mean, he's, he's out of SNL school. Mm. I said it before. I've watched SNL quite a lot over the years, and every now and again they'll pull, pull one out of a, a rabbit out of a hat, and they'll be like the cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger sketch, or um, the uh, more <laughs> cowbell sketch. <laughs> I mean, look at the talent of a show, people, or uh, Tina Fey doing the uh, Sarah Palin impersonation. I can see Roger from my house. Um, <laughs> it's like so successful that it almost it, it enters the um, the public zeitgeist. So when they hit it out of a park. 
with the amount of talent they have available to them, they really knock it out of a park. But yeah. it's like it's they, it's like a one in a hundred. Like every one joke that, that lands like that, there's a mm. hundred awful jokes. Like I and you know, I, I know Sandberg, he's very successful, and he came about. Uh, I I don't get him at all. I've seen him in um his, some of his TV stuff, and he's uh his film work is he hasn't done a lot of film work surprisingly. Um, no, and probably. It's surprising considering he's, he's so successful on television. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so it doesn't surprise me that he. It does sound like the kind of film it will work very right. He's comedy. He's kind of stupid, gross-out, sexual teenage comedy would kind of work well with with Sandler's brand of similar stuff. But but that's the thing. The stuff that I've watched of um, Andy Samberg is actually not gross-out. It's just uh, It's it's stupid humor it's those moments of like fuck yeah he's he's saying out loud what a lot of people just think when it's like like um going going back to his work in brooklyn 99 he is he's a character jake peralta is obsessed with the movie die hard and he's a cop and so everything that he does he's just connect uh, just making these similes in his head and so like oh that's like when hans gruber and he just says it out loud and the the comedy is that he's kind of that innocence of no filter and everyone around him is kind of looking at him as like you're stupid um maybe it's because i do that a lot myself but um i just find that him in uh brooklyn 99 funny whereas he doesn't do that in this he is kind of trying to play the straight man and he's not his voice the way that his voice is the way that he talks and the way that he moves it's not the straight guy in a comedy he is that kind of the slacker guy he that's that's what his voice always kind of sound always sounds like you know even he did voice work as the heretic in the dark crystal series and even then it's still kind of like all right yep still kind of stoner slacker kind of thing that's his thing he has found his particular niche and that's why why he's kind of endearing in as johnny and hotel transylvania movies that's why um he's endearing to me in brooklyn 99 so he is not leslie nielsen where is it like okay i'm just gonna play this straight doesn't just doesn't work for him and adam sandler is has now just proven that he is determined to go as far gross out comedy as he can go what can he get away with next is the thing uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've talked far too much about that's my boy that is all i'm talking about this week i will have much better things to talk about next week i am i'm now going to spend invest my time wisely Especially starting with next week's uh, chain movie of the thing. Uh, it's it's going to be a good start. It's going to be a good yeah. start. Um, <laughs> well, that's something to look forward to. We'll, we'll talk about that next week, and we'll talk about um, uh, franchises that have hung in there over the mm. years, and whatever else crosses our um, path. Uh, I'm just making a note for myself. Play us out, Johnny. Um, thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for joining us on the live streams on 
Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. I've, I've seen a few people popping in and out. And thank you, everyone, for the questions that you've been posing. Travis, if you go to Frybrain Productions on Facebook or on Twitch or on YouTube, you can join in and you'll be able to see both me and Travis get the audio at the same time. And um, your comments will go straight into us so that we can see them as they, as they lo- uh, launch up. Um, but you will be able to catch us. Um, we'll upload this episode on Sunday evening, um, for podcasts, um, across the, across the globe as well. But for tonight, thank you very much. I've been George Tarrant. That has been God, also known as Travis. We will see you next time. Bless you.